There are so many Dharma themes that might be taken up. Often at the beginning of a retreat, I have an idea about what talks I might be interested in giving. And then when I get into the retreat, seeing what other talks have been offered and seeing what's happening in the practice meetings, I often change my mind completely. So this uh, Dharma teacher role is an interesting thing because sometimes I feel a little bit like a confessor, you know. (laughs) Like, you know, okay, give it to me. Give me the download of the um, personal dukkha, including those particular stuck places that come up in the, the mind and in the heart again and again that have to do with... Mm, a kind of suffering which is, of course, conditioned and, like everything else, is impersonal and impermanent and not-self and dukkha and all of that. Yeah, it's all true. All of it. All of it is like that. All partake of the three characteristics. And of course, seeing the three characteristics, we're seeing things more on the, in the frame of wisdom, in the frame of the wisdom mind of, that's related to some sort of ultimate and universal truth. And we again and again point you in the direction of that universal truth and that wisdom level, because it's not so easy to see And it's not where we abide most of the time, especially if the mind isn't educated. So that's where we talk to you. That's where we take you. But of course, there's this whole other level at which we exist as human beings, and that's at the level of the relative world, the relative reality where we have personal histories and relationships and all of that messy stuff that, of course, is uh, ultimately not self, but, yeah, it's self. So how do, we, how do we work those two at the same time? How do we live those two truths in a way that the ultimate can inform the relative and the relative can be purified and educated by contact with the the ultimate. Uh, so in some of the practices that we've been doing here, the practices of the Brahma Viharas, we've been working at the more relational level, right? May I be happy, may I be safe, may I be at ease, may you be happy and safe, may you be at ease. You know, going through these categories of beings perhaps from the easier to the harder 
of the hardest to everyone. And, and likewise with the practice of karuna or compassion. May you be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. And then mudita, of course, may you, your happiness and well-being always increase and never decrease. I feel your joy. May it continue and grow. And then we get to equanimity, of course, which is where wisdom is brought into the frame more explicitly. And wisdom reflects on the impermanence of things and how we don't actually control what happens. Can we be balanced and at peace with that truth, even in the relational field? And Bonte is going to give a a whole talk on equanimity tomorrow uh, that discusses that in depth. So tonight I wanted to talk about something that does have to do with the, the relative level or the personal level and speak to the topic of forgiveness, forgiveness. So what's the ins and outs of this practical application of metta and karuna and upekka and panya wisdom? What's that look like when we come into contact with particular arisings within us that have the nature of um, resentment or um, fear Uh, guilt, uh, shame, that kind of range of emotions related to something someone did or didn't do or something we did or didn't do. You know, that really fun stuff. And it can, this kind of material can, can come up at the most surprising moments. And in fact, um, the Brahma Vihara practices have a well-deserved reputation for kind of like smoking out this kind of stuff because they're understood to be purification practices where sometimes the opposite can arise in the mind very strongly indeed. It's like, what's wrong with me? I'm sitting here and I'm, you know, doing meta and I'm working with um, someone that I thought would be pretty easy and now all of a sudden I'm just flooded with this feeling of resentment as I remember some really nasty thing that they did to me 10 years ago and now that I'm thinking about it, there's a whole pattern of that kind of behavior. <laughs> and in fact, I don't know why I even consider them to be a friend. But I don't want to work with them as an enemy either because that's just given them too much attention. <laughs> Let me 
surprising. Or sometimes it's like towards ourselves, you know. You sit down and you have the experience of memories arise of particularly uh, unskillful things that you've done in the course of your life. And now they can float to the surface of the mind in a somewhat surprising fashion. You know, something you did in fifth grade on the playground that... You know, now that you now that you remember that, you remember like the look on that other girl's face when you know you wouldn't let her play kickball with the rest of the kids. Or maybe some insight into how often there is anger in the mind and a recognition that, oh yes. I am often angry, I am often irritable with others, I am often not so interested in, you know, hearing much from them because my mind tends to think it knows it all. So, you know, there's self-knowledge, you know, self-knowledge. Of course, these arisings are only part of what we know and part of the panorama of um, this being. But they are often uh, very painful because they're particular places of uh, attachment. And often the identification with them is very, very strong. So sometimes we're well aware of these places in our hearts and still consciously carry and often refer to the experience. But it's interesting because even if the experience or the event was a long time ago, like really a long time ago, I mean fifth grade was like a long time ago for me, it can still be surprisingly sticky and disturbing. And so there can be suffering in relationship to it now. So what about this? How do we hold this phenomenon and include it in our practice? So just to reflect for a moment, imagine what it would be like if there was no way to be discontinuous with past errors or harm. So if it were like this, then error would inexorably lead to more error, one harm leading to repetition or retaliation. And history is filled with a lot of this, right? Not just national histories or global histories or group histories, but sometimes family histories or, you know, uh, close-in relationship histories or workplace uh, histories. But if there's nothing there to, to clean it up or put a break on it or reframe it or doing something useful in these kinds of circumstances, then on and on it would go with no way to stop it, rectify it, or do anything useful with it. So this would be an example of circumstances where once harm is done, it kind of like resonates, you know, kind of like a bell that 
yet it will eventually have some kind of half-life. Eventually it will self-extinguish, but not necessarily anytime soon. But instead of just letting it go on like that and feeling hopeless and helpless and all of that, maybe there's another way to relate to the past harmful actions of ourself or another. A way that might be more direct than hoping impermanence will take care of it. Can we deliberately incline the mind from wisdom and compassion to find a more empowered relationship to these places of pain? So let's take a look at forgiveness and the definition of forgiveness and then take a look at some of the the nuances of it and what the practice might look like. So the definition I use is forgiveness is the process process of developing a skillful unstuck relationship to the past harmful actions of ourselves or others. It involves choosing the intention to forgive in order to end a suffering relationship to the story to the people involved, and to current arisings which are related to it. This is a way to let go, disengage from continued harm, and from entanglement with suffering. So offering some further clarification then, what does it mean to consider forgiveness and the process of forgiving, because I said it was a process, right? So first thing, there's a lot of different words and feelings that can arise when you think of forgiveness. And many of these are seemingly contradictory or in opposition to each other. So I'm going to go through a list in a moment. We, we certainly all know the version of Tell your brother you're sorry. I'm not sorry. Tell him you're sorry. There may even be some wisdom in that coaching from a parent. The wisdom is, yes, if you've like just smacked him, uh, even if he deserved it. Yeah, well, this is not something that you, you want to wanna encourage in the family, right? The parents are trying to put some kind of like frame around behavior and let you know, yeah, you better get over this soon because you're almost in junior high and then he's going to be a lot bigger than you are. (laughs) But forgiveness, some of the phrases that we associate with this, acceptance, letting go, regret, remorse, guilt, shame, resistance, anger, withdrawal, rage, fear, judgment, condemnation, freedom, peace, acceptance, renewal, reconciliation, duty, 
obligation, putting on a false face, denial, liberation, detachment, release, letting somebody get away with it. So you can see what a big range of associations there there is in relationship to this this word. So let's look at some of the reasons you might want to practice forgiveness. Well, let's start with the first noble truth. There is suffering in life. Sometimes we cause it. Sometimes we have it inflicted upon us. Sometimes both things are true. Sometimes we're directly responsible for our own or other's suffering. Sometimes suffering just happens in the operation of life. This is actually a very deep uh, Dharma point that can arise in the course of practice, actually, to recognize that on a certain deep level, there's no way that we can live completely harmless lives, no matter how hard we try. You know, even the Jains who, you know, cover their mouths with masks all the time and like sweep sweep the ground before they walk on it to keep from crushing insects. Yeah, still, there's harm there that is caused just just as part of it. I remember uh, reading something written by uh, Stephen Levine where he was talking about how earlier in his practice history he was out someplace doing practice and all of this pain, all of this dukkha rose in the heart and mind and a recognition of the, the suffering and the dukkha in other people's hearts and minds. And he, his mind just went, why, 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 why? And he picked up a branch and started like just beating it. Why, why, why? Of course, it, the question was, why does it have to be like this? Why, why is it like this? Why is there dukkha? Why does there have to be dukkha? Why, do, why can't it be fixed? So there's that level. That level that sometimes can call for forgiveness. Almost a kind of forgiveness of reality for being the way that it is. But often it's more personal than that. Our own body minds are geared to notice suffering and to try to avoid it. Now, one of the great paradoxes of having this kind of human body and mind is that sometimes we respond to injury and suffering by never letting ourselves forget it, by keeping it alive. And part of this is kind of like biologically baked into the cake. So we know, for instance, that difficult memories are stored in a different way than non-traumatic ones. So the the difficult ones are stored with lots of alarms and flashing red lights around them that tell our heart-body-mind to watch out, you know, take care, 
you know, what happened could happen again. And this can create a kind of uh, easily startled, easily revived fear, anger, fear response when something even remotely similar associated with the original events arises. It's kind of like the system saying, oh, be careful, be careful, be on guard, hold on, you've got to be prepared, you know, it could happen again. Oh. And yet keeping suffering alive to help prevent future suffering is a suffering in and of itself. So how can we break the hold of suffering, our attachment to it, and open the mind to the possibility of freedom, of living in the present with wisdom, with the past taking its place as the past, as the past. And knowing when it arrives in the present, it's arising in the present as a memory of the past or an emotion related to the past or a set of body sensations related to the past. So you can see the the wisdom of this practice in that unskillful actions, either our own or others, can create a kind of cul-de-sac where we're locked into an unwholesome or unskillful relationship with the present suffering caused by these deeds which happened previously. And interestingly enough, in this there can be a kind of unskillful fusion to the very source of this suffering, whether it's a person, an event, or an action. So we're looking for a way to break free from this round and round of dukkha, which can sometimes seem to defy the law of impermanence in its persistence. Because the alternative to this is maintaining a tie of aversion to a person or situation which has caused harm. With the lack of forgiveness, you're actually remaining connected in a certain kind of way to these kinds of experiences, a way that has suffering and delusion there in the nature of the attachment. So without the capacity to move forward, to let go and let things change, in a sense we're bonded to our most painful experience and closed around them. So in the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, uh, look at how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. And the Buddha's comment is, live with such thoughts and you live in hate. Or, perhaps more of our own mind stream, I screwed up in this way and I did this damage. I need to keep punishing myself for it because I'm a bad person. Or, he, they did this to me and if I don't keep my resentment going, it's like saying it's okay. I can't let them get away with it. Now, when you pay attention to this, you, you know, listen closely. When, if that's not your particular one, you can see that that's like, mm, 
I gotta like keep this going because otherwise if I don't like keep this internal experience of resentment going, it's like I'm giving them get a, a get out of jail free card. So if we look at the function of forgiveness, you could say it's a way out of entrapment in the wreckage of past unskillfulness. And it allows us to begin again to unstick what is adhered to suffering and judgment. A way to thaw what's frozen and begin to let things move again to release to open choices, options, other than being chained to a cycle of reactivity, to a memory of past experience. So now let's take a look at how to do it. So a first thing to recognize is that it is a process. It's not just an act of will, of will Although the intention to forgive is essential to begin the process. The intention to forgive is part of a decision, a choice coming from wisdom. The decision is to no longer attach to the painful present results of the unskillful actions of ourselves or others. We understand it's in our interest to let go, to no longer insist on ignoring a truth or telling ourselves the story in a way that gives us so much suffering. My parents were like this. They were really bad. And maybe they were. Maybe they are. Do you need to live in that. But that's the wisdom part. That's part of the wisdom reflection. Timing's everything in working with forgiveness. We have to be ready for the undertaking, have enough stability of heart and mind and enough safety to undertake the practice. So sometimes it's premature to even consider this. Sometimes we're too involved with the original injury. We're still bleeding. You know, when this is the case, we need to tend to ourselves to restore our own well-being and safety first. Right? If you're in an active situation of harm, trying to do the forgiveness thing is not what's indicated. What's indicated is to do the wisdom thing and take care of yourself. But we can start, if the the circumstances indicate this is wise, we can start very gradually. So we could begin, for instance, by entertaining the possibility we might at some point consider maybe forgiving. And that's a big step, maybe even a really big step, for the mind to be willing to just entertain the possibility of maybe there's something different that can be done with this particular, this particular uh, 
form of suffering that comes up. Now, sometimes there's association with forgiveness as, uh, you know, um, like a get-out-of-jail-free card where you just kind of like paper over everything and, you know, pretend nothing happened or, uh, you know, there weren't uh, inappropriate actions or unskillful actions or harmful actions. You just kind of say, want to do the magic wand thing, you know. Ding! Forgiveness! But it doesn't really work like that. I mean, sometimes we do that ding because there's so much unpleasantness and difficulty and distress in what we experience. We do wish that we could just ding, get rid of it, but the problem is it doesn't work. So there's a lot of benefit in staying with truth to actually acknowledge error with wisdom. Because it doesn't mean denial, it doesn't mean minimization of damage or blurring of accountability. Quite the contrary. So there's uh, an author uh, named Elizabeth Gilbert. She wrote that book, uh, what is it, Eat, Pray, Love. That was such a bestseller a while back. So uh, she was involved in a relationship and her partner passed away. But this is her summary of the, her partner's character. Here is her mantra on truth. The truth has legs. It always stands. When everything else in the room has blown up or dissolved away, The only thing standing will always be the truth. Since that's where you're going to end up anyway, you might as well just start there. So, you know, looking at this uh, issue of error or unskillfulness, in many cases the original harm was done when basic sila, non-harming, was forgotten or ignored. And then unskillful actions of body, speech, and mind cause damage. So responsibility and acknowledgement of responsibility can arise as part of wise reflection. Then it's good to be clear about responsibility. We can acknowledge what we've done in ignorance or what somebody else has done. We don't need to let the harm go unexamined we actually learn how to avoid harm by considering how the unskillful action arose in the first place, what the causes and conditions were that led to the wrong action. So, you know, this is bringing the mind of wisdom into an investigation of causation. And the the Buddha um, had some words to his son, Rahula, I'm always curious about this particular story in the middle-length discourse. It's called Advice to Rahula. My curiosity has something to do with what Rahula was doing before he went to see his father and why he went to see his father right then. I have my suspicions. but uh. 
So anyway, the Buddha said to his son Rahula that in order to purify thought and action, we need to recognize and admit mistakes. And interestingly enough, the Buddha told his son that he should acknowledge the unwholesome action to his teacher to, quote-unquote, open it, meaning get it out there, make it visible, you know, drag it out into the, the light of day, oxygenate it, um, and then to undertake restraint for the future, which is a whole different thing than, you know, just slapping a Band-Aid on it and trying to carry on. Bonte uh, mentioned in one of his talks, I think it was his talk on fear, he, w- he said something about, you know, there's these different kinds of fears, fear and how they arise. And he said, there, but there's two kinds of fear that are good fears. Uh, and he talked about, just I think he just touched on it briefly, Hiri and Otapa. Interesting. And these two words are, are sometimes uh, referred to as the bright, bright dhammas or the guardians of the world, guardians of the world. And the first of these hiri has to do with uh, preservation of self-respect. You know, when something comes up in your mind, some sort of impulse or fantasy or desire to do something that you know is uh, not in accord with sila, something that you know has it roots in aversion or craving or uh, delusion or compulsion or something that's unwise. You just, like, recognize the impulse the desire, the pull of that, but the reflection comes forward, it's like, I don't want to do that kind of thing. I don't want to go in the in the the kitchen in the early morning after Thanksgiving and root around, see if there's any more pie, and then see if I can like sneak it out to my room without anybody seeing me do it. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to do that. Well, I do, but I'm not going to do that. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm not going to say that mean thing to somebody, even though, you know, the gist of it is completely true. I'm not going to let it go in that kind of way. I don't want to do it. I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to go there. Even when I want to go there, I don't want to go there. Hiri, conscience, inner integrity of some type, and otapa, which it relates to the uh, collective community and behavior uh, as it would be seen and as it would affect the collective. Oh. God, you know, if my teacher saw me do that, that would be, I would just, it would be bad. I would feel, I would just feel horrible. Or, you know, I don't want to be the person in my community that, you know, 
goes to the supermarket and tries to get all the baby formula and, you know, then sells it at a markup. You know, it's just like, there's nothing illegal about it. But but I don't want to do that, right? Wise fear of consequences. I don't want to be seen to be that kind of person. I don't want to be the kind of person that does the kind of thing that affects the community in that kind of way. Outer integrity in terms of one's visible uh, actions in relationship to the group. You know? I don't want to be the one that is, uh, is setting fire to buildings at the demonstration. Well, maybe I want to be, but I'm not going to be. So Hiri and Otap are are very important protectors. They keep us safe. They keep the community safe. They keep us on track. They keep the world safe. And these are different from a kind of unskillful remorse. In the case of our own unskillful actions, we can identify what we did that was unskillful. And by opening to the harm that was done, we allow ourselves to feel why we don't want to do something like that again. And this is wholesome remorse and resolve with a sincere heart not to repeat this error. And sometimes in order to make a renewed commitment to non-harming, we need to register the painful nature of the outcome of unskillful actions. Now, a lot of what we're talking about in terms of forgiveness and where forgiveness is indicated involves a relational field with one or more people. So what does that mean in terms of how we should act in relationship to the other people? So these are wisdom questions about what is appropriate and what might be skillful. It might be appropriate if we've harmed other people, for instance, by how we've handled drugs or alcohol to take particular steps to refrain from that particular harm. And that might involve getting psychological counseling or joining a recovery program or something like that. Uh, If appropriate, we might make amends or restitution or allow someone else to make apology or make amends. But it really all depends. In some cases, it might be the case that the best thing is just basically not to have, try to get anything expressed to a person or from from them to receive it. It might be better just to go separate ways or maintain separation, right? So what this has to do with is basically unburdening your own heart and mind in a way that has some wisdom and has some skill 
it doesn't necessarily imply that now that you have done this work of um, forgiving your seventh grade bully, that now you should, you know, look them up on Google and send them a a message and tell them that you, you know, right? It doesn't necessarily mean any of that. This is all wisdom questions, right? It doesn't mean you need to stay in a relationship with somebody who is unhealthy for you or whose behavior is uh, harmful to you, who doesn't have sila. It doesn't mean any of that, right? So it's not about supporting codependency or any of that. I will say that there does, uh, in our current culture, at least in the United States, there seems to be a lot of cutting people off. Have you noticed that? A lot of people cutting people off. People that they have had relationships with sometimes for a very long time. And out of our our anger and judgment and fear and other things in relationship to politics and other kinds of issues, just like dropping the hammer, right? Boom, boom, boom. A lot of, a lot of purity tests at the moment. That is an aside. One would think a more dharmic perspective on some of that would be uh, inclining the mind towards uh, metta and goodwill in respect to um, those with whom we have uh, disagreements. And then make sure you outvote them. (laughs) So, one last piece about uh, discernment here. There's a way to take responsibility for actions that is not skillful. And that is to use our... uh, Moral failings as proof positive we are bad and worthless human beings. In other words, to close our hearts to ourselves. But this is not skillful and it's self-centered in a kind of way because instead of becoming clear about what behaviors we need to change and taking responsibility to do so, we kind of collapse into a re reverse narcissism, making it all about us. This is quite different from Hiri, right? Hiri is, I don't want to do that behavior because that's not my standards. (laughs) I can see that's harmful. I can see that is uh, not in integrity with my, my morality, with my sila. But Here he doesn't attack itself, right? That's aversion. That's aversion. 
So this kind of shame and guilt are suffering states and to relate to them in unwholesome ways actually undercuts the real work, the work that needs to be done to liberate the mind and actually avoid future suffering. Because if, if you're all contracted around, oh, I'm so bad, I'm like horrible, I'm like the worst human being ever and I've done all these things, or you don't have the faith, you don't have the strength you don't have the courage in order to do what must be done to make something different from what you're complaining about. So getting caught in guilt and shame disempowers the mind because it starts to lose confidence in its potential to evolve towards greater wisdom. So just to point out, this process is not like a one and done it's not like you, you do a forgiveness practice and once and then it's like, done, baby. It's not like that, right? Because this kind of stuff can be really quite sticky. And, you know, after working with forgiveness, you could still experience the arising of anger, sadness, fear, remorse, or guilt. But we learn to work with these kinds of difficulties with love, with wisdom, without closing around them or identifying with them. You know what space junk is? You ever hear that expression? So this is like karmic residue, right? You know, every once in a while the remnants of Comet, blah, 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 comes, comes by the earth and everybody goes, oh, it's comet, blah, blah, Or, oh, that satellite now, oh, it's in decaying orbit, right? It's like, yes, it comes again under certain causes and conditions, some variation, some version of this, some increasingly weak representation of this might come. Karmic residue, form of space junk, still orbiting from an initial collision, which is now over. So we commit to to work with these arising difficult states in a way that serves our liberation. And, you know, for some of the stuff that's very uh, sticky and deep, it could involve getting additional support and training in other methods that can work with this kind of material directly, like somatic experience or some of the other trauma therapies, if um, what you're experiencing is, is related to that particular kind of thing, or psychotherapy to help uh, you get more insight into <clears throat> your personal history and your personal narrative uh, that's tied up in this. Maybe commitment to sobriety and entering treatment, right? Maybe some training in uh, wise speech, insight dialogue, or something like that. So there, there are other ways, other methods, um, including ones that may not be as explicitly dharmic, but you can tap the potentiality of those those methods as well and use them as an adjunct. And 
for anybody who has done a retreat of the length that you've done here, you're going to be really good students or clients or whatever it's called of these other methods because you're going to be actually becoming coming in with an accumulated capacity to stay in touch with your own immediate experience and some discernment about what's wise intention, what's wise effort in relationship to these methods. So if I was a psychotherapist, I'd like all of you. (laughs) But I'm not. So you could find someone else. Tomorrow, sometime in the afternoon, I haven't identified the time, but sometime in the afternoon I'm going to offer a a guided forgiveness practice for those who are interested. And I'll post it on the board what time it will be. And it will be in the main hall, uh, obviously discretionary. I'm not going to drag you all to confession. Okay. So let's just... Sit for a moment. May the practice of offering and listening to this Dhamma be a cause and condition for unburdening our hearts and finding freedom and peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.